As we begin this series, we want to kind of start uh, with this idea of how important is it to find the right word to convey what we want to communicate. I think today what I'm going to suggest is that how we refer to ourselves can either clarify what we are trying to communicate or confuse what we're trying to communicate. So how we refer to ourselves, you know, I think we all agree that words have meaning, right? I mean, our kids, my kids, I was thinking about them and they know when they ask for something or ask to do something that there's one of three possible answers, and two of them mean the same thing. There's yes, which means, of course, we'll do that, we'll go there, we'll buy that, you can have that. No, which means absolutely not, we're not doing that. And then there's maybe, which is just a passive way of saying no, right? Maybe means I don't want to deal with the reaction that you're going to have in the middle of the store, so I'm going to tell you maybe. Uh, maybe means I'm going to wait a little while to tell you no, uh, maybe is never yes. My kids know that. If it's yes, it's yes. If it's no, it's no. And if it's maybe, it's no, right? So, uh, but maybe gives them just enough hope that maybe they'll behave till we get out of this grocery store, right? So they, uh, so words matter. What, what we say matters. And, you know, um, more than communicating ideas, some words immediately call to mind images, don't they? Like when we hear a word, we, we picture something. There's a word picture here. And so, uh, what pops into your mind when you hear the word Christian? So that's kind of the question we're going to answer, ask in this beginning. But to kind of prime this morning, I've got a few uh, ideas, examples to get us to thinking. Now, I'll remind you before, this is not to call out, right? Don't point at anybody. Don't call anybody out. This is an internal exercise. What comes to mind when you think of a Biden supporter? There's probably a, a picture that pops into your mind. When I say Trump supporter, there's probably a picture that pops into your mind or a millennial right you, you have a picture that pops into your mind odds are you have certain mental associations with each and then here's a good one how about a Dallas Cowboy fan if you're a fan this is the image that pops in your mind right if you're a realist this is the image that pops in your mind <laughs> sorry guys I could sorry Papa. But when we think of some images pop in, here's another one, a simple one this morning. What, do you, what pops in your mind when you hear the word tacos? For some of you, it's this, the good old American Dairy Queen taco, right? Now, for the initiated and the foodies among us, like myself, this is what pops in your mind. Man, good old street tacos. I'm hungry just looking at that picture. And then for some poor souls, this is what you think of when I say taco. And there's nothing I can do for you. That's a discipleship issue, and we're going to have to talk after, after church, okay? But the idea is that when we hear words, things pop in our mind. And so, what comes to mind when you hear the word Christian? Most of us would say we are Christians, right? We identify as Christians. The church is a place where Christians gather. Odds are you associate with that word certain characteristics as well. There's a picture but also the, the culture outside the church forms mental images of what a Christian is and whether or not they are one. If you asked 10 people in the church what is a Christian, you'd probably get about eight or nine different variations of a similar answer. If you went onto the street and asked people what a Christian is and asked 10 people, you would get 10 different answers, ranging from positive to very negative, right? And so the idea is, is what comes to mind when we hear the word Christian? And here's the truth. Interesting enough, the first followers of Christ did not refer to themselves as Christian. That is not what they called themselves. Uh, Christians actually was a derogatory term used by people outside of the faith. 
right? They, they, it means little Christian. They would say, oh, y'all are just going around being little Christians, little Christ. You just want to be like him. And, and it was derogatory. It was a term that they're outside the church used. And the argument has been made that changing the word we use to describe ourselves has impacted both our understanding of ourselves, ourselves and the clarity of the call in our lives as followers of Jesus. So where did this term Christian come from? In Acts eleven twenty six, and it'll be on your screen, we see, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This was something that people outside of the church called them. It was a kind of a set of derogatory term. And so what did the early followers call themselves? Well, it's right there in verse 26. The disciples. When Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, when Luke wrote in Acts, when they talked about themselves, they used the word disciples. You say, what, what does it matter? Disciples is a very clear word. A disciple leaves no room for interpretation. A disciple is someone who follows and obeys and does what the master does. But a Christian, as we've seen, it has so many connotations. And so what I would argue this morning, and if you're sitting there worried, no, I'm not going to tell you to go to work and tell people you're a disciple. I'm not going to say after calling ourselves Christians for a thousand years, we're going to go and say, I'm no longer a Christian, I'm a disciple. But I will say how we refer to ourselves internally, how we think about ourselves, impacts our lives greater than sometimes I think we realize. And so this morning I wanted to look at the calling of the first disciples. You know, the word Christian is used only three times in the whole Bible, but the word disciple is used some 281 times. Disciple is a far more accurate and compelling description of what it means to truly follow Jesus. And as we will see, the concept of a disciple as we dig in, it will expose the fact that many people who claim to be Christian are not actually disciples of Jesus. And so to get an idea of what a disciple is, we're going to go to the first calling of Jesus' disciples. And we're going to find that in Matthew 4. Right, turn there now, Matthew 4. We're going to begin at verse 18. And what I hope we see this morning in the calling of these first disciples is a picture of what a disciple is. And hopefully gain some understanding of what it means to be a disciple. So if you have your copy of God's Word, follow along as we read. Matthew 4, beginning at verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, and the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that, that scene that un, unfolds there? Like, as I learned it as a kid, I want to like, describe how it, Sunday school taught me this went. You have these blue-collar, rough fishermen on their boats, mending their nets. And here comes Jesus in his, his white robe, right, with his sandals. And he looks over and he says, follow me. They have no clue who he is and they jump out of their boats and follow him. That's, that's the way I learned the story. And it never really made sense. Why, why do these guys follow him? What is he asking them to do? What, what does it mean? And so I think with a little bit of history, the story makes much more sense. In, in the Jewish culture, the men, uh, boys rather, started Torah school when they were five. And so at five years old, they would enter Torah school where they would learn about the first five books of the Bible. And they would do that for five years, five to ten. 
Okay? They, would, they would learn for the first time what uh, God said in Genesis, and they, and they would learn about Exodus, and they would kind of learn these things as they grew up. And at 10, there was a little bit of a, a culling. Like they would only keep the best like 20-30%, and the rest would go back to their families to serve as apprentices in their family business, whatever that was, right? And so then those that were, that were good and were chosen, that 20%, they would go on from 10 to about 17, learning the rest of what we call the Old Testament. And so they would study the rest of the prophets and the Psalms and Proverbs, and they would learn if they wanted to carry on their career as a religious student, they would have to find a rabbi. And they would have to become his disciple, his Talmud. They would have to, to, to find a disciple that would continue to teach them on their quest to become a religious leader. So you would find a rabbi you admired and you would apply to become one of his disciples. And this is how you would do that. When you found one, you would go sit at his feet. Right? This is a disciple that you like, that you find is, is engaging, that is smart, that has uh, got charisma. And you say, this is the guy I want to model my life after. And so you would go sit at his feet and he would ask you questions. Because he had his choice from the best of the best, right? Those that had passed the test at 10 were now 17. And of all those, he got to pick the best disciples, the smartest, the brightest. And so he would ask them questions put them through a series of tests to see if they were worthy to be his disciple. And the rabbis could, of course, choose the smartest, most talented boys because everyone wanted to be a religious leader. Like, that was the, there were no rock stars and basketball players. Like, that's not what kids dreamed of being. They dreamed of growing up and being a religious leader, a figure in the, the community that people respected and admired, right? And so they could literally have their pick. Another reason the rabbis were so picky is that when they were choosing a disciple, they weren't just choosing someone to teach. They were choosing someone they believed could become just like them. To know what they know, to do what they do. A disciple was someone who would eventually behave so much like you, it was you reproducing spiritually. And so they were very selective. For several years... These young disciples would follow their rabbis, imitating them in every way. The goal of a disciple was to be like his rabbi. And every now and then a rabbi would come onto the scene that they would say was a, was a special type of rabbi. One they would say had authority. One that would be perceived to be so close to God that he could illuminate the text. He could help one truly understand it. So there were rabbis that just repeated what they had been taught. And then there were these rabbis that would arise and they would have authority and God would work through them and they would be miracles and then people would recognize this person has unique authority in the kingdom of God. Jesus, of course, is that type of rabbi. That's what the question when they say, uh, we've never seen anyone teach like this. This is someone who teaches with authority, not like the other scribes. That is, Jesus had this authority. Uh, when he did miracles, they would come and the, the other religious teachers would say, where'd you get your authority right they're asking him how did you become this rabbi because no one knew jesus nobody had discipled him he just came on the scene and he had this authority and so it's in that culture that background that we find the calling of these four disciples and that's important because it helps us understand what's happening here and so uh, the bible says while walking by the sea of galilee 
he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net, for they were fishermen. So the first thing we're going to see about a disciple this morning is that Jesus calls the willing. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing. Jesus calls the willing. What's the first thing you notice here? These were Jewish fishermen working in the family business. What did you see? They didn't make the cut, right? They didn't make the cut as religious students. They have gone back into the family business. They weren't the brightest and the best. They were those that learned all that they could learn, and when their teachers did not think they had any more aptitude or potential, they sent them home. Notice that Jesus did not choose the best or the most deserving. He chose the B team, right? He chose those that the religious leaders had rejected. I want you to think about that for a minute. When Jesus chose his disciples, when he gathered the team that he would invest in and disciple that would take over the mission and the kingdom of God when he left, he did not pick the best of the best. Now, I know that's encouraging to someone here today because it's encouraging to me that I don't have to be the best of the best to be a disciple of Jesus. So, of course, these guys followed him. Like, it makes all sense now when we realize that here's these fishermen that have essentially been rejected by the religious community. And here comes this rabbi just with all of this authority. Everyone's talking about him. And he says, hey, I want you to be my disciples. Follow me. Of course they threw their nets down. Like this guy was saying that he saw in them the ability to make them like him. Right? That they would be like he was. This is the guy that some of them were told in another passage, Andrew hears John the Baptist, this great preacher that Jesus says is the greatest prophet that has ever lived, point to Jesus and say, I'm not even worthy to untie that guy's shoes. So when that guy comes by and says, you're my disciples now, they drop everything. They run. Remember, these were not the best, not the deserving, and not even the seeking. Remember the way that this usually worked was you sought out a rabbi who had his pick of the best and the brightest, and if you passed his test, then you would become his disciple. Jesus bypassed all of that, went and found fishermen and called them to be his disciples, skipping all of the wise of the day, inviting these men without much potential or positions to follow him and to become like him. John MacArthur says it this way. God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. He chose fishermen and tax collectors and rebels to be his disciples. Why? Because Jesus wasn't concerned with their abilities, but their availability. They didn't have what the religious leaders thought they needed, but Jesus wasn't concerned with that. He was concerned with their availability. He wanted men who didn't think much of themselves so that he could show them what God could do with men who were available and willing. And we see time and time again the disciples proving that they're not the best of the best. Peter rebuking Jesus, stumbling over his words, making promises he can't keep. James and John wanting to call down thunder to destroy the Samaritans. Like We see the disciples stubbing their toes over and over again, proving these were not the best and the brightest. But listen, 
they were willing. They were willing to follow Jesus wherever he went. Now, the same is true for us. And I'm going to tell you something maybe no one has ever told you before. Jesus did not call you because you're awesome. Jesus didn't call you because of your great ability. He didn't call you because of your great aptitude. That's not what Jesus calls his disciples based on. The question for someone who would answer the call to follow Jesus is not how able are you, but how available are you. Isn't that great news? You don't have to be the best. Listen, some of you have hesitated following Jesus. You have not leaned fully in because you're not smart enough. You're not bold enough, you're not brave enough, you're not courageous enough, you don't have enough aptitude, learning ability, you hadn't had enough education. And Jesus scraps all of that and says, I am far more concerned with what I can do through you than what you can do for me. We say this saying, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the called, amen? So the good news for a disciple is that God doesn't choose you based on what you can do He chooses you based on what he can do through you. And that is all about how available and willing you are to be used by God. As we consider the call of the disciple, we see that number one, he calls the willing, not the best. The second thing we see pertains to the call itself. And this is is Jesus' call. He says in Matthew 4, 19, And he said to them, follow me. Like, simple call, right? Follow me. Notice Jesus doesn't tell them where they're going, what exactly they're going to be doing, aside from learning to be fishers of men, or what he's ultimately calling them to do. Why? Because Jesus' primary call on a disciple is to be with him, to become like him. Like, how? Well, you have to know him. Well, how do you do that? You have to spend time with him. Why? Because you want to soak up every single word that comes out of his mouth. So his call is to follow me. Go where I go. Stay where I stay. Learn from me so you can minister the way that I minister, that you can pray the way that I pray, the way that you can love one another the way I love you. Like, isn't that what we see for the rest of Scripture, the disciples doing? From this point forward, for three years they were with Jesus almost every minute of the day, listening, learning, following his example. Like if you trace the disciples, first they listen, they learn, and then Jesus sends them out to do. And then they come back and they learn and they listen and they send out to do. Right? This is the pattern. Be like me. Learn from me. Stay with me. Spend time with me. So how do we do this since Jesus is not with us in the same way? We can't sit around breakfast with Jesus. We can't watch him do miracles. Like how do, how do we be discipled how do we experience this and listen it's the same way daily listening learning following example everything we need is right here like everything we need to listen and to learn and follow the example of jesus has been given to us do we treat this like it's the very word of god like this is reading this studying this is spending time with god Do we take advantage of Sunday morning Bible studies? Do we come to hear the word preached on Sunday morning service? Are we gathered together on Wednesday nights to hear from God in our prayer time? Listen, if you're serious about being a disciple, you're going to take advantage of all of that and more. 
Like, you're going to be daily reading the Bible. You're going to be listening to podcasts that talk about the Bible. You're going to be reading books about subjects in the Bible. Like, you're going to be absorbing God's Word. There was a saying in the day of Jesus and his disciples. There was a saying that was supposedly the highest compliment you could pay to a student, a disciple. And it was, the dust of your rabbi is on you. No, it didn't mean you were dirty, right? It meant you were following so closely that literally in his footsteps, the dust of his walking was all over you. You, you spend so much time with him that, that you are almost like him. So how are we supposed to become more and more like Jesus? J.D. Greer says this, this way, you cannot know Jesus any more than you know his word. You cannot know Jesus any more than you know what he said, what he did, how he lived. This is how we spend time with Jesus. This is how we are discipled and we learn and we listen to God. Listen, Jesus' call is not for you to invite him into your heart. Jesus' call is not for you to repeat some prayer after a pastor, to be best friends with Jesus, to walk an hour to join a church. His call is to come and follow me, learn from me, be like me. Allow the Spirit to work in and through you to produce things that are consistent with my character and my life. The primary call on a disciple is to follow me. What keeps us from being disciples is that we haven't fully understood that call and what it means for our life. It means we're going to have to leave some stuff behind. Like this becomes the focus of our life. We see that with the disciples as Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee and he calls them. We see that we're going to have to leave some stuff behind. Immediately they left their nets. Immediately they left their boat and their father. What are they doing? They are leaving stuff behind because the third thing we see is Jesus calls us to leave it all behind. To leave it all behind. Nets, boats, fathers. Why do you think the author listed those three things? Because they represent two big categories. Nets and boats represent your livelihood, right? Your, your finances, the, the, the trajectory of your life. And the Father represents the most significant relationships. This is, listen, this is their identity. Jesus says, to follow me, I have to take precedence over all those things. I have to be more important than your nets and your boats and your family. say, Pastor, that's, that sounds a little rough, right? And that's not what I signed up for. Like, I said yes to Jesus because someone told me to ask him into my heart, and if I joined a church and I acted right, then I'm, I'm a good Christian. There was a time when there were a big crowd following Jesus. They, they, were, they were there for Jesus. They were there to follow him and to listen to him. And Jesus turns around and he says, I want to make sure you understand exactly what it means to follow me. In Luke 14, he turns around and he says, listen, the Bible says, great crowds accompanied him, right? They're following him. They want to be followers of Jesus. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Like, we know Jesus is speaking in hyperbole like, to make a point. We know he's exaggerating because he wants him to fully understand. He isn't saying you have to hate your parents or any of that. What he is saying is if you aren't willing to follow him so closely and make him the priority in your life over everything else, you're not really ready to be a disciple. And the Bible says when he had these moments with the great crowds, many of them left. When he told them, this is what it means to really follow me. Because some people want the benefit of being close to Jesus, right? They want to follow him for the feeding of the 5,000. They want to follow him for the healings. They want to follow him for the the messages, but when he turns around and says, listen, this is what it means to follow me, come and die, take up a cross, abandon your, your, what you thought your life was going to be, many people turn around and go the other way. Jesus calls us to leave it all behind. Now listen, the reality is for many of you, following Jesus will not cost you your family. There are places in the world that it absolutely would. A call to follow Jesus would mean that you were cut off and cast out and maybe even murdered for following Jesus. But for many, we won't be called to do that. But listen, it may absolutely cause discord in your relationships with your father, your mother, your children, your grandchildren, your sisters, your brothers. When following Jesus means no longer participating in the lifestyle of your extended family. When following Jesus means saying no to some things that upset people because you're saying yes to Jesus. It may mean you get labeled the religious nut or the Jesus freak of the family. No one wants you to be at the dinners, right? Like it may mean that for you. To really follow Jesus may cause discord. In the same way, you're probably not going to have to give up your job to follow Jesus. But you might. He might call you to vocational ministry. He might call you to move and plant a church or move to a new job, job or a new city for his kingdom. He may call you to be a missionary and completely change the trajectory of your life. Some of our friends right now are evaluating the call on whether God is, is calling them to uproot their life, their careers, their, their family, and move to Rwanda to support God's work there. And they're wrestling with that call, what that looks like. It is, he, God is changing the complete trajectory of what they thought their life was going to be. And to be a disciple is to be okay with that. To be a disciple is to say, whatever you want for me is greater than anything that I want. Now, for many of you, that won't be the case. Like, God's not going to call you to move to Africa. He's not going to call you to abandon your family. I remember when I was first wrestling with my call, I, I was talking to Brittany about it, and I said, I, th- I think God's calling me. And she said, as long as he doesn't call us to Africa, right? Like that's the, the, everybody thinks that if they say yes to Jesus, that's where he's going to take you. Some of you may, yes, but some of you, God's going to call to be faithful right where you are. Some of you, he's going to call to move towns or cities or jobs, but listen, it's for the kingdom of God. 
whether or not he calls you big, listen, make no mistake, every one of you who is a disciple is going to have a moment in your life where you must decide what holds the greatest sway over your life. For the teenagers, for the kids, the teenagers, the young, the young adults, like, your friends are going to want to go one way. And if you follow Jesus, you're going to have to take a stand the other way. And it may mean they label you a, a religious freak or a Jesus freak or they, they ostracize you or they bully you. But what you care about Christ, how important he is, must outweigh the sway that they have over you of being liked or being popular. For business people, it may be that everyone in your business is taking shortcuts, fudging numbers, reporting their taxes in a creative way. And the temptation is going to be everybody else is doing it. But what holds greater sway over you? What Jesus commands you to do or what the world is telling you is okay? For many of you, it may be as simple as what you're going to do with your finances. We saw over the last couple of weeks that we are called to be generous and sacrificial in our service to one another. And many people prove that they aren't a disciple because their boats and nets hold greater sway over them than Jesus and what he said to do with our resources. The question to ask yourself concerning your own position as a disciple is not this. Some people start with this. What would I give up to follow Jesus? Right? Well, I would leave my house. I would leave my job. I would, I would give him more money. That's not the question. That's not the question. That, that question falls short. Here's the question. What would you not leave for Jesus? And if there's anything in that category, there's something in the way of you being a disciple. Because to follow Jesus means he is the Lord of everything in your life. Like, you will forsake what he forbids and you will pursue what he prescribes unconditionally. Like, that is your life, to follow Jesus. So far we've seen that Jesus calls the willing, not the best. That his call is primarily to be with him. And that he calls us to leave it all behind. And the last thing we see in this encounter of Jesus calling these first disciples is the call to follow him involves the command to spiritually reproduce. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. I'll make you fishers of men. Like he's calling them to do something. In the same way that I'm calling you to follow me, you are going to go call others to follow. This is essential to the call to be a disciple. Last week we looked at the final command Jesus gave his disciples. What was it? Go into all the world and make disciples. Like that was the final marching orders for the church. We saw that everything else serves this purpose. The baptizing, the teaching, the going, all of those other verbs in that sentence all stem from the only imperative, make disciples. Isn't it interesting that he began their call by telling them he was going to make them fishers of men and he concluded his call by telling them to go do it. The very beginning he says, listen, follow me, become like me, be fishers of men. And then at the end he said, okay, you know, go do it. Go make disciples of all nations. These two bookmarks tell us what a disciple looks like. Jesus calls his disciples to spiritually reproduce, to make disciples who make disciples. If you are a disciple, this is going to be a part of your life. And if it's not, you have a good reason to question whether or not you're a disciple this isn't important to you, if this doesn't seem like something you want to spend your life doing, then you ought to ask yourself if you've ever really been a disciple. 
See, the Great Commission, the plan for that, to fulfill that, is not accomplished through preaching to the masses. It's not accomplished with programs. It's not accomplished with ministries. All those, all those things are good. The Great Commission is God's plan for that. It's people reaching people. Like, you are God's plan to fulfill the Great Commission. Like, every person here is part of God's plan to reach White Oak and Longview and Gladewater and the surrounding areas. Like, that's God's plan A. His disciples reaching people, making disciples that will make other disciples. That is how the church moves forward. That is how the kingdom of God advances. So here's the deal. I'm going to lay all my cards on the table. Okay, like this, is, this is it. This is my heart. I want to see us become a church of disciple-making disciples. Like that, that's my heart for Emmanuel Baptist Church. That we would become a church where every one of you, by God's grace, will be a reproducing Christian this year. Like I want that to be the reality of our church. And I want you to commit to it today. Say, Pastor, what are you asking me to do? Remember what I said last week. Making disciples is simply teaching someone to follow Jesus like you follow Jesus. You only have to be one step ahead of someone to disciple them. You don't have to be the best or the brightest or the smartest or the most equipped. You just have to be willing to allow someone into your life. And more than that, don't forget what Jesus promised. He said, I will be with you until the end of the age. You say, okay, pastor, how do I do that? I'm in. I want to be a reproducing disciple. I want to be that person. I want to be a follower of Jesus. It's all in. How do I do it? I'm going to give you two very simple, practical things to do. Some of you are already doing this, but if you're not, number one, engage in the church. Get plugged into a small group on Sunday morning. Somewhere where people can invest in you and teach you and, and spend time with you. Make Wednesday night prayer gathering a priority. Draw near to God's people who share the same mission and purpose so that together we can spur one another on. This year, I want you to lean into the church. I want you to engage. Remember the first of the year, we preached a message on meaningful membership, what it meant to belong to one another. And the call is if we're going to be disciples who produce disciples, we're going to have to engage deeply with one another. And here's the second, perhaps most importantly thing I, I want you to walk away from here today is I want you to identify your one. We saw the video today about J.D. Greer talking about his one and what that looked like in that relationship. And we're going to be giving you tools over the next five weeks. We're going to be talking about it. But here's what I want you to do. I want every person to be able to answer the question, who is your one? I'm going to challenge you to have one person this year that with the help of God, you're going to introduce to faith in Jesus. Now, you can't save them. That's not what I'm asking you to put on yourself. I'm asking you to commit to praying for and laboring in the work of introducing that person to Jesus. I'm asking you to commit to God and say, God, will you show me one person this year that I can reproduce myself in spiritually? Like maybe you already know who that is. Like maybe immediately when we said, who's your one, you thought, I know him. He's a coworker. He's a grandson. He's a neighbor. Like I know who God has placed in my life and on my heart. And maybe you don't. Here's what I want you to commit to today. You should have received a book and a bookmark when you came in. And that bookmark has a detachable portion for you to write a name on. Did everybody get one of those? Anybody not, you can get one. 
uh, right now. You just raise your hand and we'll bring you one. Here's why this is so important. If you've already identified your one, I want you to write it on there. And if not, then in a few minutes at the end of the service, I'm going to ask you to pray that God would show you one. Here's the part I'm going to ask you to step out. After we pray, we're going to play some music. And during that song, I want you to detach that card with the name of your one. I want you to come late on the altar. And we're going to collect those. And over the next 30 days, we, uh, as your pastor and staff, are going to pray over those with you. As you pray for your one, we're going to pray for your one. Right? And I want to see as many one cards as we have people over the next couple of weeks. Maybe you don't have one today. Maybe you pray and, and you don't have one. Then next week, if God gives you a name, bring your card. The week after, we're going to collect these and we're going to pray. And my prayer, the, heart of, the, the, the prayer of my heart is that we will have a name for every person who is here. Can you imagine if God answered this prayer? Like, can you imagine if the hundred of us reached a hundred more for Christ? Can you imagine if every small group committed as a group to reach one person far from God? Like what God could do collectively if we engage people with the gospel. What an impact this church body could have. So here's my question as we close. It's twofold. First of all, are you a disciple? Like we've been talking a lot about ones, but, but are you a disciple? Maybe you've never understood what the call to be a disciple was, and today you understand what that call is. Maybe you're the one that's here today. Do you understand that who called you is Jesus? And if Jesus is who he says he is, then he deserves more than casual association and church attendance. He deserves total abandonment and complete and utter adoration and obedience. So some of you need to cease being what we call Christian and need to actually become a disciple. Maybe you've never understood that until today. Maybe this is clarity for the first time that you're going to have to leave everything to follow him. Have you ever surrendered to him? That, that's the first part for you to wrestle with this morning. The second part is, are you engaging in the mission? Are you reproducing yourself? Because what we've seen here is that if you're not, you're not actually a full disciple because the call to follow Jesus is the call to make disciples. It's the same. And so Jesus has issued the call. The only thing left is how you're going to answer the call. The call, Jesus says, to follow me. And so now we pray. Now we respond. So I'd ask you to bow your heads with me. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. Listen, have you never become a disciple? Are you ready to become a disciple? If so, then you can right where you are pray something like this. And Lord Jesus, I'm ready to follow you, to be your disciple. I'm ready to become your disciple. Every single part of my life I surrender to you, all is yours unconditionally. And I receive your gift of forgiveness. If you've never done that, then do it right now where you are. Like, just cry out to God that you want to follow him and accept his gift of salvation and be his disciple. And now, the rest of you, we pray to God, give me that one person this year with your help I can introduce to Jesus. Maybe you're thinking of them right now, like their face, their name, 
just lift that name to God. Say, God, help me. Help me reach this person for Christ. Help me reproduce myself this year. God, I commit to it. I commit to be a part of it. Father, I pray this year will be marked by seeing EBC become full of reproducing disciple makers in our communities, in our families, and in our workplaces. I pray, give us help and strength to do that. And we pray all of this in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stand this morning, if today for the first time you answer the call to be a disciple, I'm going to be right here at the front to receive you. If you have a name of someone on your card, I'm going to ask you while this music plays, you come late on the altar so we can collect it. And if you don't have, if that doesn't apply to either one of you, then I pray you spend this time praying earnestly for God to show you one. Stand as we worship.